All right, Ms. Bryan, when you're ready, we'll hear from you first. be prepared. Yes. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Before I start my argument, for the courtesy of those listening, I just want to warn that this case involves graphic descriptions of self-harm. Jamie Leonard was arrested on July 19, 2017, in the midst of a psychotic episode. And from the moment that he arrived at the St. Charles County Jail the following day, he was in obvious need. But the defendants failed to take reasonable measures to abate a risk of serious harm to Mr. Leonard, and he decompensated in front of jail staff, ultimately gouging out his own eyeball. The defendants repeatedly ignored Jamie Leonard's obvious needs despite having the tools to help him. Nurse Martin failed to provide Mr. Leonard with medication he was prescribed by outside providers, even though Mr. Leonard's mother dropped him off at the jail, conveyed directions for administering the medication, and emphasized his pre-existing mental health issues and Reiter's syndrome that affected his left eye. Nurse Martin continued to withhold this medicine, even though she personally observed him attempt to choke himself by putting his hand down his throat shove his fingers up his nose so hard that it bled and had to be packed, pull on his genitals, and tell her, I quote, I have to get my soul out because it is time for me to die, end quote. When Jamie Leonard told her that, that it was time for him to die, Nurse Martin just had him transferred to the suicide prevention unit. And there in the SPU, the defendant stood outside Jamie Leonard's cell for nearly five minutes and watched him gouge his eye out despite, according to uncontested correctional expert Ken Katsaris, that they had more than enough backup to enter the cell and prevent the harm. Plaintiff's uncontroverted medical expert also testified that were Mr. Leonard properly medicated, again with prescriptions that came into the jail shortly after he arrived there, the entire incident could have been prevented. But instead, the defendants made a conscious decision to merely watch him hurt himself. On the facts in the record, a jury could find that the defendants were deliberately indifferent to Mr. Leonard's serious medical needs and used unwarranted and excessive force against him. There are many claims that we've raised on appeal. Um, given the limited time today, I'd like to focus on three specific claims. The Be before you do, I just wanted to ask you on Nurse Martin. Um, <clears throat> you, had, you had mentioned this, um, the placement in the suicide prevention cell and the constant monitoring. We're at criminal recklessness land, um, and I am troubled by the fact that he didn't get his medications, um, um, assuming they came in the prison, which we have to at this point. Um, but does it really rise to the level of criminal recklessness for Nurse Martin? And I say that because she did take some precautions. And when you have a mentally ill individual in the jail, one of the things you're trying to prevent against is self-harm or harm to others. And I think it's fair to say suicide prevention cell is supposed to do that. So was she really criminally reckless? Yes, there, <clears throat> excuse me, on the facts in the record viewed in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, um, they 
established that Nurse Martin was criminally reckless. She showed apathy or unconcern. And there's also clearly established case law from this court to support that conclusion, including Dad versus Anoka County, a 2016 decision where this court held that it's clearly established that delay in the provision of treatment or in providing examinations can violate the individual's um, rights when their ailments are medically serious or painful in nature, and Folks versus Cole County, which is an earlier Eighth Circuit case that held that if a reasonable official would have known that treatment and monitoring were necessary, the refusal to provide access to treatment would constitute deliberate indifference. It's our position that simply transferring Mr. Leonard to the suicide prevention unit for monitoring was not sufficient to respond to his serious medical needs. It was not reasonably it was not reasonable measures um, given what Ms. Leonard or Ms. Martin saw him um, experiencing personally and heard from other offices being reported to her. One follow-up on that, um, on that exact point. Um, can we count um, the fact that my understanding is Nurse Martin also when he injured his eye, or um, no, right after the pepper spray, excuse me, had recommended that he be put outside the suicide prevention cell so they could he could wash out his eyes. It turns out that somebody else made the decision that he they couldn't move him somewhere else to a more uh, to a better medical area. Um, do we, can we count that in terms of um, in terms of the overall sort of mens rea that Nurse Martin had? The fact that maybe she didn't do a great job with the mental illness, but she might have gone a little further on the physical injuries he suffered. Well, it, it's true that there are a number of points during Mr. Leonard's short confinement at the jail that many jail staff members failed to do what they were supposed to do. They failed to do what they were required to do under the Constitution. That does not vitiate Nurse Martin's liability for failing to meet his serious medical need for psychiatric medication that we, he was prescribed. And that, the, the, the right to have an access, access to your prescribed medication when you're detained is actually something that's directly addressed by this court in Dad versus Anoka County. That's a case where someone was arrested the day after having oral surgery and they had been prescribed Vicodin for the pain. And the jail knowingly withheld that Vicodin, not because of medical judgment, but because of indifference, despite the fact that the detainee was in indescribable pain, as Mr. Leonard testifies he was, um, and couldn't eat and couldn't drink. And this court held that that was sufficient to state a claim for deliberate indifference for failing to provide prescribed medication. So here, Nurse Martin knew at the time, she testified she knew at the time that she was treating him that he had these prescribed medications, um, but she ignored his obvious need. And I've already talked about some of the things that she, some of the incidents of self-harm that she personally witnessed. She also heard threats of self-harm. She observed him pacing, flushing water, talking to himself, yelling. I really don't think there's any way that, that the, uh, the defendants can contest that he was in uh, experiencing acute psychosis and that that constitutes a serious medical need. And on the facts in the record, a reasonable jury could find that just transferring him to the SPU and not providing him with his prescribed medication or calling the psychiatrist on call um, is, uh, constitutes deliberate indifference. I also want to, to touch on, before my time is up, the excessive force claim 
against Defendant Harris. That's the officer who administered the OC spray on Mr. Leonard during an unnecessary cell search in the SPU, and the deliberate indifference claim against Sergeant Baker for failing to intervene when she was standing outside of Mr. Leonard's cell and observing him engage in self-harm, scratching, tugging, pulling at his left eyeball until he was able to, to get it out of his socket. At some point, as, as we were just talking about, Nurse Martin did have um, Mr. Leonard transferred to the suicide prevention unit. And shortly thereafter, the officers conducted a cell search. And before they went into the cell search, SBO Fisher told Officer Harris, against whom this claim is raised, to have his pepper spray out and ready. So this was a planned use of force. Now, it's important to keep in mind the, the circumstances that they were going into. Again, Mr. Leonard in a state of acute psychosis, fully naked, in a suicide prevention cell, which is stripped of things that a person could use to harm themselves with. Um, and as the uncontested correctional expert in this case testified, this search was totally unnecessary, and so was the use of force. Again, Mr. Leonard was handcuffed. He was naked. He was no physical threat. There were multiple officers. There were three officers in the cell with him. Their bodies were between him and the cell door. That's at this 602 of the appendix. And there were merely four seconds that passed between the time that Mr. Leonard stood up from his knees and the pepper spray was deployed. He was sprayed not because he was threatening, but simply because he refused to obey an order, the order to stay on his knees during the cell search. But as this court has held and others, mere refusal to obey orders cannot justify the use of pepper spray. And Defendant Harris expressly admitted that he perceived no physical threat at the time that he deployed force. Worth noting, as the uncontested expert Katsaris does, the Defendant Harris is a martial arts martial arts expert. Um, that's at 455 of the appendix. But he made no attempt to temper or limit the force used. He made no attempt to restrain Mr. Leonard simply with his hands or relying on the hands of the other two officers who were there. Instead, he immediately used what this court has actually referred to as significant force by deploying OC spray at very close range, approximately one foot, from Mr. Leonard's deceased, diseased eye. Excuse me. <clears throat> but there's no dispute that the officers didn't know that he had Reiter's syndrome, correct? Or is that disputed in the record? Uh, there, there's, I, I don't think it's settled in the record that they knew. Even if they didn't know, it, there's lots of clear testimony about training and instructions on the use of OC spray and keeping a, a, a certain distance, whether it's three or four or more feet away from the individual against whom you're using it, so as to avoid the needling effect and injuring the eye. Um, so Mr. Uh, Officer Harris was both deploying the OC spray too close to Mr. Leonard, but he was also deploying it when he didn't need to. And when assessing the appropriate use of force in a jail setting like this, we apply the six Kingsley factors. So um, the relationship between the, the need for force and the amount of force used, the extent of the injury here was very significant, ultimately ended in Mr. Leonard losing his left eye. Um, any effort made by the officer to temper or limit the force, again, there was none here. Within four seconds, Officer Harris already has that spray ready and deploys it within a foot of Mr. Leonard's eye. Can I ask you a question about the, 
one thing we haven't mentioned is the size of Mr. Leonard. Um, he's an enormous man, six foot eight, three hundred pounds. And at least for the officers that were entering the cell later, he, as you mentioned, he had acute psychosis. And so you have a, a very large man with psychosis. Does that play into the use of force here that they were trying to subdue him because they knew if he got away, he could cause significant damage? Look, I'm, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that it doesn't matter that he was a big man because I think it does. I mean, I, and, and one of the six Kingsley factors that we have to look at in determining whether force was appropriate is the severity of the security problem. And so the defendants have said he was a big man, he could have escaped the jail cell, um, but that evidence is contested and, in fact, belied by the video evidence in the record, um, which you know, shows that he's subdued very quickly. Um, he's, again, handcuffed and naked, surrounded by officers. These are all factors that this court has considered in other contexts in assessing whether the security issue really warranted the use of force. Um, so, for example, um, in Tatum versus Robinson, that's the shoplifting case that was decided by this court in 2017, where someone was accused of shoplifting. There were two officers and two store employees by this person. The officer ordered him to put his hands on the clothing rack, and he did not comply. And the officer deployed um, a chemical agent on him within 14 seconds of disobeying the order. And this court found that that was an unreasonable and unconstitutional use of force because there was no immediate threat. He wasn't actively resisting, and the officer wasn't alone. Just as here, Officer Harris wasn't alone. He was one of three officers in what he has described as a very secure unit. The SPU is a very secure unit. Um, and uh, there, the, the video calls into question this assertion by the defendants that he was charging toward the door or even darting toward the door. In fact, that's one thing that the district court got wrong is claiming that the video shows Mr. Leonard of, um, darting toward the door. Um, and the reason that that's a wrong conclusion for the district court to make is because the Supreme Court and this court have both held that interpreting video evidence is a job for the jury. That's Scott versus Harris, the 2007 Supreme Court decision, but it's also uh, a decision that this court made in Camporis versus the St. Louis Symphony, 210 F. 3rd, 845. Uh, it's a 2000 decision. So, yes, his size is a factor to consider, but is one of many factors to consider, um, including whether um, the plaintiff was actively resisting, which is contested here, um, and uh, the threat that's reasonably perceived by uh, the, the officer. Again, it's our position that their claim that he was going to escape is belied by the other evidence in the record, um, but even if uh, even if the court believes that, there's a question of fact as to whether he was resisting, whether he was trying to leave the cell, um, especially when you look at the entire period of his detention at the jail. Um, earlier, he was compliant with officers. Sergeant Baker noted that when he was transferred from his uh, the green bench where Nurse Martin had him being watched to the SPU, he was transferred without incident. He, during his time at the jail, never showed any propensity of violence toward any jail staff member or medical staff member. The only person that Mr. Leonard harmed or threatened to harm was himself, and the jail let him do it. Before I run into my rebuttal time, I do want to talk briefly about the 
um, the deliberate indifference claim against Sergeant Baker. Again, Sergeant Baker was a shift supervisor who was outside of Mr. Leonard's cell um, watching him engaged in self-harm. She had actual knowledge of his psychosis and his decompensation, and she watched um, for several minutes and consciously decided not to enter the cell. She did not direct others to enter. Um, and yet she could see everything that was going on. And the reason we know that is Defendant Fisher testified in his deposition that in the SPU, you can look directly into each of the cells. And as, as your honor um, mentioned earlier, the point of the SPU, <coughs> suicide prevention unit, is to monitor someone, not so you can watch them harm themselves, so you can prevent them from harming themselves. Uh, but Sergeant Baker didn't do that here. Now, the defense is, hey, there's a policy that says we have to have appropriate backup before we can enter the cell. Well, it's disputed whether she had appropriate backup. She was never outside of that cell alone. When she arrived, um, suicide prevention officer Scott was there. And um, the uh, both parties' experts, uh, the plaintiff's expert, Katsaris, and also the new jail director, Keene, testified that she had more than enough backup to go into the cell. She should have gone in earlier, and she could have prevented the harm, but she didn't. Now, we don't know what was going on outside of that cell because we don't have video of it. We don't know what was being shouted by Mr. Leonard as he was engaged in self-harm because we don't have audio. And we don't know what those officers were able to perceive from their vantage point. Uh, you know, the, the, while we have a video of the self-harm which was provided to the court, and I hope your honors watch despite it being very difficult to watch, it's from a different vantage point than what the officers had. So that's a question for the jury. What Again, could it, in your view, what should she have done? In my view, Sergeant Baker, in fact, the law required Sergeant Baker to go into the cell and prevent the harm. She knew of a substantial risk of serious harm to Mr. Leonard. In fact, she was watching and it. Is she six feet, eight feet, six feet, eight inches tall? She's not. No, she's not. That doesn't, uh, and you know, the fact that she's a different size from Mr. Leonard does not excuse her from intentionally delaying her response under this court's clearly established precedent, Olson versus oh, Bloomberg. I see. You didn't expect that she would enter the cell herself, would you? Well, we're not suggesting that she would have entered the cell by herself. As I said, from the moment that she arrived at the oh, cell, she, she had she another officer. She failed to summon any help. That's your argument. No, she failed to intervene to prevent the harm when she could have. And that intervention would have consisted of what? She could have gone, well, it, it could have consisted of a number of things. She could have gone in and they could have restrained uh, Mr. Leonard with the assistance of, of SPO Scott. In fact, earlier he was restrained because, again, he was sticking his hands down his throat to try to choke himself and sticking his fingers in the nose. And, and Nurse Martin said, if you continue to do that, we're going to have to double cuff you so you can't. He continued to do it, so they double cuffed him. So there are a number of things that Sergeant Baker could have done, but what is clearly established under this course precedent and a robust consensus of authority from the Ninth, Seventh, and Fourth Circuits is that when a reasonable officer knows that the person requires medical attention and they intentionally delay going in and preventing the harm or providing attention, that constitutes deliberate indifference. And again, uh, to clarify, what steps did she take or not take to delay the administration of medical assistance? She, she just stood there. She did nothing to prevent the harm to Mr. Leonard. This is akin to, as 
as plaintiff's expert Katsaris testified, watching someone take a bed sheet, tie a noose, put it on a, on, on, you know, a hook, hang, test the weight, and hang themselves and stand there and watch someone do that without intervening despite having the ability to go in according to testimony, uncontested testimony that plaintiffs have in the record um, that has to be viewed in the light most favorable to the plaintiff and that wasn't mentioned at all in the district court's order. I'm well into my rebuttal Can time. Can I just ask one more question to follow up on Judge Wolman's point? I just want to understand the facts quickly, which is she was alone. My understanding is I think it's undisputed that she was alone and then a second woman guard, a female guard came and she waited for a third guard according to prison policy before she entered the cell. I just want to make sure that's correct. Actually, um, Your Honor, Sergeant Scott, or uh, Suicide Prevention Officer Scott was outside of the cell at the time that Sergeant Baker arrived at the cell. Okay, so there were two. Yes. There were two officers. Okay. Yes, there were two officers. And then Nurse Martin arrived at some point, and her testimony is inconsistent. She testifies at first that the cell door was open and they were standing there watching him. That Would also, you like to save eight seconds for rebuttal? No, I, I, may I finish my you point? You <laughs> That also belies the claim that there was a security problem, the fact that Nurse Martin testified the door was open when this was going on. Um, I'm out of time. I'd ask briefly that the court reverse the district court's decision, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your argument. Thank you, Mr. Wells. Mr. Wise, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, my name is Brian Wise, and I represent defendants Stephen Harris, Lisa Baker, Dante Fisher, Teresa Martin, and St. Charles County, Missouri. And the defendants respectfully request the court affirm the decision of Judge Shelf of the district court finding judgment in favor of all defendants on all counts in Mr. Leonard's compl complaint. I'd like to start by touching on something that uh, Judge Bowman had addressed there regarding Sergeant Baker. Um, the, the, uh, forgive me, the, the Mr. Kalanis Council referred to a robust uh, consensus of authority um, relating to what Ms. Baker should have done. Uh, there is, in fact, a conflict within these circuits. And, in fact, the Fifth Circuit in Arenas v. Calhoun, um, which is, forgive me here, 922F3-616 states that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment does not require a corrections officer intervene immediately in a prisoner's apparent suicide without sufficient support from other officers where doing so would jeopardize his own safety. And that is the situation we had here initially. Officer Christian Scott was there at first, and when Sergeant Baker got there, they did wait for appropriate backup in accordance with jail policy. Um, and they did do so and they, then when they did, they did come in and assist uh, uh, Mr. Leonard. Um, with the uncontroverted video testimony, they went in within a few minutes of him starting to really inflict harm. This was a quick response. This was not a extensively delayed response here. Is, is the, doesn't the video show two minutes and 20 seconds or something of that nature? It was about two minutes and 16 seconds from the time that you saw him really gouging at his eyes with the two hands before someone came in to assist. I believe it was Officer Scott who came in to assist um, why was it given? Why, given the severity of what was going on, the fact that he was gouging out an eyeball, mm -hmm. um, why wasn't enough to have two officers? Um, I know that prison policy says three, but 
you know, given the emergency level that was, or the, you know, the emergency situation, should two officers have been enough? Uh, not in this case. I don't believe so, Your Honor. The, the reason being is just prior, before, two officers had difficulty controlling Mr. Leonard when he resisted uh, efforts to control him earlier in the cell just, just before. Um, in that situation, and in this case, Officer Scott was one of those, was the third officer in the unit. So we'd be talking about Officer uh, Scott and Lisa Baker in there trying to deal with, again, taking into consideration a six foot eight, 300 pound uh, inmate who uh, not only was acting erratically before and, and resisting arrest and was difficult to control, but also had the capability, was in a state of mind to inflict the pain that he had on his eyes. So um, he has the ability to inflict great pain upon the officers and it is within the interest of the officers to protect themselves and make sure they have appropriate backup when entering um, the cell. Commenting on Olson v. Blueberg, which they have cited as the case uh, from the Eighth Circuit, which establishes uh, what Sergeant Baker was supposed to do. In that case, the officer heard inmate's threat to commit suicide, told the inmate, do what you have to do, and left the inmate for about 15 to 25 minutes, did not return despite the fact that other inmates were telling the officer that, uh, that the inmate was, going, was hanging himself in the process of hanging himself. Um, frankly, when dealing with the clearly established standard, we're talking about that the case has to put the officer on notice, that a reasonable officer in her situation was acting wrongfully and acting as acting, and just this case simply does not do that, does not set that precedent in terms of the qualified immunity standard. Um, touching on uh, the question regarding Harris, at APP 148, he did not know. We have testimony that he did not know about the plaintiff's eye condition. And uh, again, that's on APP 148. And that touches on a very important principle, which we have to do here, is that each defendant is only liable for his or her own conduct and with what they knew at the time. Um, and there's also been contended that the search was unnecessary. The search is done in accordance with policy at the end of every shift. It's actually done for the protection of the inmates in the suicide prevention unit. That is, they um, search for contraband not to punish or to get anyone in trouble, but to make sure there's nothing in the unit for which they can harm themselves. Granted, there's a sense of irony in that now, but that doesn't uh, change the claim that or change the situation that they did it with the intent of assisting the inmate and doing it in accordance with policy. Um, you want to address the nurse and the uh, medications? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, let me take this off here. My apologies. The, um, with regard to the medicine, again, it's we are talking about each, uh, each defendant's own conduct. In this situation, um, Nurse Martin did not meet with, Ms. Manoli did not speak with her at any point. What she had to go on was the inmate health progress notes. And if you look at what was in the inmate health progress notes, which is at um, AA 278 to 279, um, the first one ref refers to Michelle Mandoli calling the medical, calling to discuss the medical history and mentions the writer syndrome. There's also a note in there that a release of information was signed and sent to the pharmacy to try to confirm the uh, prescriptions which Mr. Uh, Mr. Leonard had received, we received, there was a note the next morning that there was an attempt to verify the meds, but they could not be verified. And then the afternoon before this incident happened, Ms. Manoli did come in, plaintiff's mother did come in with medication. They noted it all down in the inmate progress notes. There, uh, they noted the medications. They also noted that there were eye drops that did not have any instructions on them. And uh, 
that the notes were put into the property bag and that another release of information, another ROI, was signed um, and provided to um, and put in the uh, and sent to Dr. Linda Hunt to try to get verification of the medications. Now we did not have that verification in that time. And that evening, when Nurse Martin saw that she did not have an order from the jail doctor, from anyone regarding a verification of medicines to, to administer any medicines, which actually distinguishes it from Dad Vianoka, because um, in that situation there was not only the nurse denying to give him any medication whatsoever for his pain, but the jail doctor eventually did provide him with a prescription of ibuprofen, and she still denied that medication to him, despite receiving that prescription from the jail so doctor. So when you, when you come in, I'm just not familiar, when you sure. come into a jail and you've got medications, perhaps a spouse or, or a child brings in medications or whatever, um, you can't actually receive those medications until the doctor signs off on it and says, that's, that's fine, you can do it. And basically that can take, that can obviously take up the what was it, a day and a half, two days, or whatever happened in this case? It normally takes much faster than that, but yes, in the situation that we can't just necessarily rely on anyone coming in Fair. off the street, coming in, providing pills in a prescription bottle and saying, here, they need this. Well, it's, it wasn't anyone sorry. This wasn't anyone off the street. Yes, it was his mother, correct. It wasn't anyone. But, um, make it sound like it was, well, you said anyone off the street, so why can't the jail rely on the inmate's mother coming in and saying here's his prescription medication because um in this situation i still think you need verification from the pharmacy that prescribed or the doctor who prescribed them themselves rather than just did, simply feeling did yeah. the mother bring in what did she bring in exactly she brought in did she bring in bring medication that had his name on it medication we certain of them had their name on it um and some of them, like I said, the labels were rubbed off. For example, the eye drops, the labels, it was unable to be read because of the uh, um, label being rubbed off. And they noted that in here that they couldn't read the instructions on it. Um, but there were a certain number of medications. They were partially taken, partially. Um, so are you saying that if the mother had brought in a medication that had his name and it was legible, then the nurse could have proceeded to administer it, and that's the problem here? Or are you saying that there's some bureaucratic requirement that even if it's fully documented, they've got to track down a doctor? Well, let's say we've got to track down a doctor. The pharmacy. But they, we do require verification of the medication from either the pharmacy or the doctor before administering it, and then we would end up filling the prescription ourselves and then providing it to them. In do that call, situation, do you call the pharmacy where it was originally prescribed, or do you call, or is the call to the jail pharmacy? It's the pharmacy where the prescription was originally prescribed. Correct. So you're saying you won't even use the medication that the mother brings in. You will get a new prescription filled, which would also presumably require some time. Well, that would require would not require too much time because we'd be done within our own. Jail. It would be once we get the confirmation, we would end up uh, filling it pretty much immediately at that point. If it's in our formulary, if it's not in our formulary, we generally have a uh, generic for everything. Um, right at the jail, mm -hmm. you have a full supply of eye, eye drops. Well, it depends. But again, it depends on the medication. Sometimes we need to go to an outside source. Sometimes we have it there available, depending on what it is. But it sounds to me like you wouldn't use the prescription the mom brings in under any circumstances. You would just have it replicated either in the prison pharmacy or the outside. Correct. Pharmacy. Generally, that's the case just because we, we need to 
you know, verify that what we get is what it purports to be. You're and, afraid you'll get sued if you administer the eye drops and they aren't quite right. Or not to be glib, but if we were just administering medicine of what we get from, even from family members, even from there, we'd probably be in here a lot more often than not than the, the reverse being true, if I'm being frank. Yes. Much is made out of the Haldol, that the Haldol, unlike some of the other prescriptions, was actually available in the prison pharmacy. And I understand that, you know, I don't know that medicine pretty well, but it's an antipsychotic. And so my question for you is, um, the other side makes it sound like the, the nurse could have prescribed that in, a, in an acute or, mer- or emergency situation, and perhaps she should have done that here. Would she have needed to wait for the doctor's approval to give that, or how would that happen? She would have waited for the doctor's for approval. She could have called during that time, if okay. indeed she deemed it necessary. She could have called during that time and, um, and get in there, and that's at AA406 in her testimony. She couldn't administer it herself without an instruction from the doctor. But, you know, in that moment... With what happened, she heard, she assessed the plaintiff, she addressed his physical needs, like we talked, um, like the, was addressed in the brief, that she addressed his physical needs. Um, she continued to have discussions with him. He talked about needing to die and getting his soul out, which, you know, granted, was pretty extreme, but getting his soul out because it's time for him to die. She interpreted that as that it's his time, that he was going to commit suicide, commits, uh, that she needed to do something to prevent that. And that is when she made the decision to go ahead and move forward and have him transferred to the suicide prevention unit until a mental health officer and the supervisor could clear him um, from it. So that, I do think she took affirmative deliberate action here. She did not exhibit the deliberate indifference, the mens rea that you're well, discussing. Well, here's the thing yeah. that troubles me. I know I asked opposing counsel, but here's the I'm thing. Sorry. I mean, she knows he's suicidal. She knows that he has a medication that came in from the mom that has not been given in, in however long it is. Um, why isn't that deliberate indifference when, as you say, she could have just called up the doctor on, on call or whatever and said, this guy is suicidal. We've got these we've got these pills here. I guess you can't give them necessarily, but we can at least give them Haldol. We approve that. Um, why isn't that deliberately indifferent when it took so long? We're not talking about a few hours. We're talking about a long time when no medicine was given. Yeah, and I understand the question. In this situation, again, she did address she did what uh, assesses mental state and she did have knowledge of this before but she was attempting to take action take act to to go ahead and um prevent him from engaging in any self-harm or anything like that now we know we're talking about two different potential um dangers here but um it's hard to distinguish i think in this situation it was hard to distinguish one from the other she just saw a mental health crisis she saw a suicide uh uh, potential suicide threat, and she acted on it, and she acted upon it. it certainly does not show apathy or unconcern. I just simply do, think it does not rise to the level of, um, you know, crim- crim- criminal recklessness in this situation. So um, she just made the wrong call by saying the suicide prevention unit is good enough, and we don't need to do the medicine right Exactly, now. and unfortunately, we can go ahead and second-guess everybody, you know, and, and certainly many have in, um, following this, but that's not the standard that we go by. I know I'm going to, you know, look at my oral argument here, but that's in regret some things I've said, but that's not the standard for malpractice either. In this situation, um, you know, it has to be um, what the Constitution requires. In this situation, she at least acted with what the Constitution requires, not with the uh, mens rea of criminal recklessness. And again, kind of touching on the point, um, that each defendant is, uh, 
is uh, liable for their own conduct. Um, that also goes to Dante Fisher. No, we haven't discussed that much, but that was related with the, uh, Officer Fisher to really the claim that based on his role after the, the aftercare that he, um, that he uh, by, by his role that he was you know, responsible for the decisions regarding the aftercare that belies the, their own record in there in which they point to it being Officer Harris in control who then transferred it over to Officer Scott. Um, and I think that to some, uh, to some extent that point it may be conceded um, nine days prior to filing the reply brief, they filed another action in state court in 1983, action against Officer Scott as well, and that's been removed to federal court, so now we have that pending as well. So um, with regard to Nurse Martin's testimony and regarding the four or five people, just wanted to clarify that up as well. Um, she did say there were four or five officers when she got down there. She also testified that the door was open and they were working to um, to try to prevent him from getting the harm by the time she got there. That's also uh, corroborated by her inmate progress notes. Um, the testimony is at AA 405 to 406, and then uh, the progress notes are at AA 277, and it's the third note in the progress notes. Um, with respect to Officer Harris, um, Again, they referred to Tatum v. Robinson. That was a non-resisting, non-fleeing arrestee, not yet in custody, suspected of committing a non-violent crime. And in that situation, and also in Walker's v. Bower Sox uh, and Hickey v. Reader, all the situations, they, they try to characterize it as simply he was not obeying an order, and that was it. He got up from his knees and he was not obeying an order. With Tatum v. Robinson, it's just simply, like I said, it was it, that's, that situation with Bower Sox, the person refused to give a food tray and step away from the door. And then Hickey v. Reader was a uh, refusal to clean up your cell. In this situation, and they've argued them, uh, actually, Mr. Leonard, uh, that these cases are nearly identical to the facts of these cases. But this is not this, that situation. Mr. Leonard was actively resisting. A uh, person in um, Officer Harris's uh, position could not know from these cases that his actions were illegal at the time. Um, and I think uh, for that reason, uh, Qualified immunity applies to Officer Harris as well. Um, lastly, with regard to the county's liability, uh, first off, um, with no under where I get there's no underlying violations. With no underlying violations, there's a um, cannot be county cannot be found liable for the underlying substantive claims. And uh, again, the cases that they had cited to um, establishing the pattern, a lot of them had been reversed by the time you know we got to this point. So. Um, we don't think we've had what can establish a, uh, a pattern, a uh, custom, a continuing widespread and persistent, persistent pattern that was uh, ignored. So, Your Honors, if there any. Very well. Thank you for your Thank argument. you very much. Appreciate it. I'm afraid we used all Ms. Bryan's mm -hmm. time. But hey, I could use this three minutes. Yeah, I'm sure you could, <laughs> but we've got a busy day, so okay. I think it's been well ventilated, and we appreciate both of your arguments. The case is submitted and the court will file a decision in due course.